joining us today. It's the second Friday of Lent, and we're anticipating the arrival of Father Emmanuel for our Apologetics Friday. But in the meantime, I thought I would draw some attention to some of the events that are taking place on the Space and Treasure Coast. There's a a great day of reflection. All are invited by the Space Coast Alliance of Small Christian Communities. And this event will feature Father Dave Pavanka. And the uh, subject matter will be on discipleship. This will take place on Saturday, March 10th. And this will be at the Church of Our Savior Gym on North Atlantic Avenue in Cocoa Beach. Registration begins at 8.30. It closes at 3 o'clock. Lunch and all handouts, uh, $12 per person. If you would like more information, you can go to uh, sccspacecoast at gmail.com. That's sccspacecoast at gmail.com. Or you can call 321-405-2374. That's 321-405-2374. So I can uh, assure our listeners that Father Dave Pavanka is a wonderful speaker. We had him as our mission priest at Holy Name of Jesus just a few weeks ago, and he was a tremendous blessing Uh, to our community. So keep that date in mind, Saturday, March 10th, a day of reflection uh, given by Space Coast Alliance of Small Christian Communities. Well, uh, on Apologetics Friday, we've got some questions that we're going to pose to Father Emmanuel when he arrives. But in the meantime, I thought we could do a little reflection just on uh, today's gospel reading. And uh, just want to mention that Uh, Every Friday, hopefully, we'll have Father Emmanuel and, at times, Father Jeremiah. They will be joining us. But, Father, here you are. Thanks for being here. Caught in traffic. Thank you so much. moving vehicles. Welcome, beloved listeners. God bless you. You couldn't just buy, you couldn't just buy, locate, Father? You just Uh, couldn't, we we just couldn't beam you over here, right? Uh Uh-huh. Well, Father, I'm I was just—I was just going to talk a little bit about uh, today's gospel reading from the Sermon on the Mount, and of course, what it challenges is the supposed uh, righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and how difficult it was sometimes for the people to perhaps submit to the authority of the scribes and Pharisees, and yet it appears that when Jesus confronted. Uh, their lack of genuine holiness, they always kind of pointed to what they were doing externally as far as appearing to be so religious. That is very correct, my brother. Yes, beloved listeners, the reading today, very awesome gospel passage. You want to go ahead and comment first? Oh, that's fine, Father. You're here. I I defer to the priest uh, every time. Okay. Um. The first thing, beloved listeners, we want to highlight is to clear the air on the importance of the law. The importance of the law. Just as my brother mentioned, this is coming from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. If you focus like from Verse 17, 
you will see Jesus telling us the importance of the law. We still have the law contrary to what you may hear from people. But law driven by the Spirit, just as the song from Romans tells us, there is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free. So, the law written on tablets of stone, now replaced with a law written in our hearts in the Spirit. No longer law written with pencil or written with ink, but law written through the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean. So the law is still there. So Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill it. That's the background of what the gospel today is still unpacking. So in the gospel today, precisely from Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, from verse 20, Christ now says to every one of us, unless your righteousness exceeds those of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. What is the issue there? Was it that the Pharisees were just following the law and therefore we throw away the law as a way to exceed their righteousness level? No. We still keep the law. Like at this time, we are in the period or season of Lent, the time of fasting, penance, almsgiving, and more prayers. It is still the law of God that we should fast, we should do almsgiving, we should do prayers, and we should do abstinence. It's the law of God. Just as obtained in the time of the scribes, of the Pharisees. The difference is Jesus is telling us, just as related in Matthew chapter 6, when you fast, when you pray, when you do almsgiving, when you do abstinence, don't do it at the level the Pharisees and scribes operated on. The level of hypocrisy. The level of eye service. If someone is watching, they will pull out their rosary, so to speak, and begin to pray. If someone is watching, they will observe fasting and abstinence. If someone is watching, they will also do kindness. They will perform acts of kindness. But if no one is watching, prayer is not important. Almsgiving, not important. Fasting, not important. It just ties into what happens today. We are all I would dare to say most of us are overtaken by the spirituality of the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus says we should disavow. How do we do so? 
Every little deed we do, we bring a video camera. A video camera to proclaim to the world we are taking care of orphanage in this area or that area. We are helping widows here and there. We had no, we don't have to show off on television. We become reduced to philanthropy. Just like an atheist who doesn't practice faith can do donation and showcase it and broadcast it, trumpet it. We don't have to be that way. Jesus says, your right hand shouldn't know what your left is doing. Your left shouldn't know what your right is doing. Your arms giving, your charity acts, your prayer life, personal prayer life we mean now, not like worship on Sunday, which is public liturgy, public action, not like holy hour in this year of the Eucharist, but that your personal prayer life should be genuine but private. Genuine but private. In a way that you are not trying to get praise from people. Oh, you are so holy. Oh, you are so nice. Oh, you are so religious. Oh, you are so kind. No. When Jesus did his own practice of prayer, Scripture will say, in the morning, a long time before dawn, he goes to a quiet place alone and prayed. Only the Father saw him during the... Can you see that? That is how you are to pray. When Jesus healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind man, he would tell the person, tell no one. Tell no one. Can you see Jesus living by his own preaching? Hence, today's gospel, unless your righteousness, your acts of kindness, acts of love, acts of charity, exceed the manner of the eye service type of the scribes and Pharisees, it is a waste of time. You have gotten your earthly reward. And therefore, you cannot expect God to reward you. Which do you prefer, God's reward or earthly reward? So when you make out your offering checks, or when you put money in church, or when you help the poor, you help in Vicente the poor, you help in daily bread, you help in Catholic charities, try not to blow your trumpet. Try to keep it private. In that way, your father who sees what is done in secret will repay you. May God bless you. Father, it must have been quite a challenge for the common people when they heard Jesus say that their righteousness would have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because yes. they were completely intimidated by what appeared to be this tremendous holiness, and yet Jesus challenged that. I can't imagine. I try to imagine myself as a common person in that day, perhaps always being taught to look up Correct. to these religious individuals, and yet Jesus comes and challenges them. It must have been an amazing thing uh, to see and to experience, and yet that's exactly what Jesus did. No wonder they wanted to get rid of him. It's still a challenge today, beloved listeners. It's a challenge for Pope Francis. 
It's a challenge for Bishop Noonan. It's a challenge for all priests, all lady. A challenge even today. How or what do I mean? Let me explain. You see, in the Old Testament, your practice of holiness was somewhat quantified. It was as if you owed God only 10% of your piety, of your charity, of your contribution to your church or your temple, of your holy life, 10% fighting to tithe. So 10%, that is one-tenth of whatever you are doing. One-tenth of your time, one-tenth of your talent, one-tenth of your treasure. That was the way it seemed in the Old Testament. And Jesus is telling us today, unless your righteousness exceeds, those of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Oh, oh, beloved listeners, how many of us in our time, our talent and treasure do up to 5%? How many of us do up to 5%? This is a challenge. How many priests or religious give at least even 5% to their prayer life, to their charity life, to their fasting life. It doesn't make sense to you. An abstinence life. So it's not just about doing something in a very conventional way, ritualistic way, in a way that is just about someone doing cultural spirituality. I'm talking about praying with all your heart, all your mind, all your commitment. That when you are praying, you are not thinking about something else. You are completely overtaken with the spirit of Christ. You are in Christ for at least 10% of the time. That's a challenge, dear listeners. That is what Jesus is telling us. We must do more. So when next you do your stewardship of time, talent, and treasure, you must see Christ says you must do beyond 10%. That is the teaching of Jesus. Many of us wonder, why is tithing so quiet or silent in the New Testament? Why? Why is it so silent? You see, in the Old Testament, every now and then you hear tithe, 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 every now and then. And even today, our evangelical brethren, in order to get this money out of the people, make reference to the Old Testament. Surely we know Jesus did not abolish the law and the prophets. But to fulfill it, nevertheless, Jesus never emphasized tithe. 
Let me invite my brother Bill to please read for us Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 23. Bill, please. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Thank you. Beloved listeners, can you hear that? Jesus says, tithing you ought to have done without neglecting justice, mercy, compassion, love, forgiveness. Beloved listeners, Christ didn't abrogate tithing. But Christ says, the level you and I to, att- uh, to attain should supersede the one of scribes and Pharisees. Don't kill the messenger. I'm only saying what <laughs> Jesus said. Matthew 23, verse 23. And Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus is saying, tithing beyond the level of the scribes and Pharisees. So it's not 10% anymore. 10% is cancelled by Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. 10% is abrogated. So that you have to do more of your time, of your talent, of your treasure without neglecting mercy, compassion, love, oneness, tolerance, humility, obedience, and so on. Can you see how challenging it is to be a follower of the Christ? So there is no room for self-righteousness. This was the reason St. Paul said, by grace you are saved, lest anyone should boast. Can you see? Okay, going into offering. Notice in the New Testament how the early Christians embraced what Jesus was proclaiming. How did they embrace it? The early Christians were no longer just content with living at the level of the scribes and Pharisees. Rather, they were now completely given. Let us invite our brother Bob, our brother Bill, I beg your pardon, to please again read for us Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. Please. Acts chapter 4. Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things which he possessed was his own. Dear listeners, can you hear that? It, it was clearly not a, not a tenth, not ten percent, not tithe. Everything they possessed, they were making available to the whole people. That is embracing the teaching of Christ. Please go on. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold 
and laid it at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to each as any had need. Dear listeners, can you hear that? People sold their real estate property, their belongings, and brought a tenth? No. 20%? No. 30? No. No, 100. And brought the proceeds and laid at the apostles' feet. Total giving. Why would the apostle preach tithe? Why would they say, no, keep back 90%, bring only 10%? No, that's the reason tithing was silent in the New Testament. Because people embraced the new law of the spirit of life, Christian life in Christ Jesus, and were given generously of their time, talent, and treasure beyond 10%. That is why the Catholic Church does not preach 10%. That is the reason. If you see any Catholic Church preaching 10%, you know we are copying from evangelicals and Protestants. We are not copying from Jesus and the apostles, which has been the tradition over the centuries from the beginnings of the New Testament. So we have to follow Jesus, not the Protestant way or evangelical way. This is not denigrating them, but just simply saying how they emphasize 10%. That is not what Jesus preached. Jesus emphasized beyond 10%. Remember how Jesus was observing people making donations to the treasury? And people had surplus, and they were giving from their surplus, not from their capitals, remember? And a poor widow had only two small pennies, all she had. And she put those two pennies. Who did Jesus say carried the day? Jesus said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has done more than the rest of them. That the rest gave from surpluses. But the poor widow gave her entire livelihood. Not a tenth of her widow's might, but the whole 100%. So the next time, beloved, you make a donation and you say widow's might, know what you are saying. Please don't bring, if you have a thousand dollars in the bank and you give us twenty dollars, don't say widow's might. No, widow's might is that you put. The whole money you have. That is widow's might. She had only two pennies. She gave the whole. That is widow's might. So if you give everything you have, that is widow's might. May God bless you. You know, Father, you mentioned uh, self-righteousness, and this is probably the greatest challenge we have as church-going people. And perhaps that challenge is something that reminds us of the need, especially during this Lenten season, to examine ourselves, you know, to do an examination of conscience, to kind of look at where we are in our spiritual lives and perhaps seek uh, the, the uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit to help us understand where we truly are in our spiritual lives. Are we really going forward? 
Are we really taking prayer more seriously? Are we really taking fasting more seriously? Are we truly committed to almsgiving during this uh, season of Lent? This gospel reading, Father, is very challenging. And Father, you've been meddling with us today when it comes to how we use our finances. (laughs) Yes, my brother, beloved listeners, you see, self-righteousness is a problem. Self-righteousness. Remember Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Christ giving us a parable about two men who went to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. I don't know. Somehow, we are picking on the Pharisees today, but we're only following the lead that our Lord Jesus gave to us. So two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. Maybe it's good I invite my brother to please read the story for us. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, from verse 11. Please, Bill. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Thank you, Bill. Dear listeners, that says it all. You see, the Pharisee stood and prayed to himself. Self-righteousness doesn't help in worship of God. It's an impediment, an obstacle. He prayed to himself. So, meaning that kind of prayer doesn't go to God. That is why Jesus tells us, don't do any show. Be humble. If, for instance, I come to church and I feel I'm the holiest person in the church, and I then degrade any other person in my mind as unholy, as not good enough to be here, That is not the spirit of Christ. We have to reject it. You see, Christ Jesus himself was humble to identify with us lowly sinners. He was counted as one of us, as if he were a sinner. Can you see, Christ didn't place self-righteousness. Even when he encountered a man who was rich, who came to him to ask, Good master, what can I do to be saved? Christ asked the man, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Dear listeners, can you see that? That's humility. Jesus was self-effacing. We too have to be self-effacing so that we can do the work of God in the Spirit of Christ. 
Philippians 2 from verse 5. Have this mind in you, which was in Jesus, who though was in the form of God, didn't cling to equality with God, but emptied himself. Kenosis. Empty yourself. Lower yourself. Humble yourself. For Jesus says, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. You're listening to Treasures of Faith, and I'm here in the studio with Father Emmanuel. This is Apologetics Friday, and we've been reflecting on the gospel reading from the Sermon on the Mount. And Father has really challenged us about our struggle with self-righteousness and how it relates perhaps uh, to our desire to give not only of our time and our talent, but also of our treasure. And so in the next half hour, we're going to take a break here in just a few moments. But uh, I want to remind you, this is Apologetics Friday. So on the other side of the break, we've got, we've got some questions, Father Emmanuel, out of our email bag that we want to address. And uh, we are so grateful that you are joining us today. Uh, please hang on with us, and we'll be back in just a few moments. Well, welcome back to Treasures of Faith. I am Bill Gent, and I'm here in the studio with Father Emmanuel. And this is Apologetics Friday, and we've got some questions in our email bag. And uh, Father Emmanuel, uh, someone has submitted this question. Uh, when it comes to uh, the uh, administration of ashes and all of the symbolism that surrounds that, uh, could that potentially lead confusion regarding the Eucharist and maybe some people just concluding that the Eucharist is in the same way, just a symbol? Thank you, Bill. Beloved listeners, well, the first thing is that Jesus did not say, I am the ashes. <laughs> so, but we know that ashes is a sign of repentance that Jesus himself endorsed. So we don't want any confusion here. You see, in our last episode, we mentioned that people can receive ashes anywhere. Anywhere. So when evangelicals or Protestants join in Ash Wednesday ceremonies or services and they also distribute ashes. That is a welcome development. But that is different from the Eucharist. The Eucharist as we know it from Scripture is only available in a Catholic church or in an Orthodox church that believes in real presence. Only available so, in that context, the Eucharist is not like ashes. Why? You don't need a priest to impose ashes on you. You don't need it. You can even impose ashes on yourself. It's just a mark of repentance. Abraham said, I am dust and ashes. David poured dust on his own head. The king of Nineveh rose and sat on ashes on his own. Nobody poured it over him. So you can impose ashes on yourself. But Holy Communion, 
Only a priest can consecrate Holy Communion. Ordained priest. A priest who enjoys apostolic succession. Coming down from Christ and his apostles. Only that one can celebrate what we call the Mass. The sacrifice of the unleavened bread. The new Passover. The body and blood of Jesus. The Eucharist needs a priest to do that. Because Christ is the priest who offered himself. He offered his body, offered his blood, and consecrated his apostles during the Last Supper as the new priests of the New Testament. Telling them, this is my body given for you. My blood poured out for you. Do this in memory or in remembrance of me. So only a priest can offer sacrifice of the mass. That is why from time immemorial, you see the apostles, when they celebrated the Eucharist, a priest was the one presiding, a priest. Let us look at the scripture, for instance. We are going to read Acts of the Apostles. We are going to read chapter 20 to show that a priest is the one presiding. In this case, St. Paul was presiding. So we are going to read Acts chapter 20. We are going to read from verse 7. Let me give this to Bill. Bill, please. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. That is the Mass, celebration of Mass on the first day of the week. Please go on. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow. So who was presiding? Paul was presiding. A priest. A priest. That is the tradition of the church that Jesus bestowed. So Paul was preaching, and he preached for a long time. Please go oh, on. And continued his speech until midnight, Father. I mean, that's a, that, that's a long mass. <laughs> that's a long preaching. That's a real long that's preaching. That's a long preaching. This is the vigil. This is like Saturday vigil. So they began probably around 6 p.m. But whatever, it was a long sermon. You see, that is why it's good to spend time teaching the word to our people. Because... Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from preaching of the Christ, Romans ten seventeen. So it's important that we underscore that it's good to catechize, to preach, to teach, to explain faith for our people. So, beloved listeners, as you can see, the Eucharist is not like ashes. The Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus. It's not a symbol. And so, only an ordained priest can do that. God bless you. Father, we have another question here, and it reads this way. During the recent dedication of the new church at St. John the Evangelist Parish, this is in Vieira, they embedded relics in the altar. And this person writes, I have an evangelical friend who says that relics are an evil practice that the Catholic Church has adopted. 
How, how would you answer that one, Father? Thank you, my brother Bill. Yes, beloved listeners, you see, sometimes it's better if one does not understand something. The person should seek for clarification, not prejudge it in a negative way. Always ask for clarification. Throughout the history of the church, from the time of Christ till today, relics have always obtained. Yes, you heard me well. Not from the time of the Council of Ephesus. Not from the time of Council of Trent. Throughout the history of the church, from the time of Christ till today, relics have always obtained unless one does not know what one is reading. So, relics of saints. Remember about Jesus during his ministry and a woman who had hemorrhage. Hemorrhage for 12 years. Said to herself, if only I could touch his cloth, that's relics. If only I could touch his cloth, I will be well. That's relics. Relics of saints. What a saint touched or what a saint used, that's what we call relic. So anyone associated with Jesus, what they used, what they touched, that is relic. It could even be ashes of their own cremation or part of their body, their remains. That is relic of saints. It could be the chalice he used to say mass. It could be the rosary he used to pray or she used to pray. It could be the clothing she wore. That is relics of saints. Just as that woman demonstrated who said, if only I could touch the garment of Jesus, I will be well. She touched it and she got well. Amen. That is relic of saint. Yes, beloved listeners, there's no place Jesus said, come and touch my cloth. The woman had her own faith. The question is, did it work? When she touched Christ's garment, power went out of Jesus. Can you see that? That is relic of saint. Then someone will say, oh, that's Jesus. Let us now read Acts chapter 19 from verse 11 to see the apostles also. And you will see relic of saint is biblical. It's the word of God. From the beginning, we have always used relics. Please, my brother Bill. Acts chapter 19, beginning of verse number 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Amen! Beloved listeners, can you hear that? Can you hear? Handkerchief. Handkerchiefs and aprons were used to touch Paul's body. That's relic of saints. 
what touched the body of Paul and carried to sick people or possessed people and they got well. That's relic of saints. The Bible says relic of saints work. Hence, when the new church was opened in Vieira, relic of saint was implanted on the altar where the sacrifice is made. Sacrifice of Jesus made. Beloved, we believe in the communion of saints. Mm. That is why we still read the scripture where Jesus himself tells us about the woman who touched him, daughter, your faith has saved you. And the woman was well. Can you see that? We see use all those traditions of the saints in what we do. You see, Christ himself, a woman, came to Jesus. Mark's, Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. A woman came to Jesus and she needed Christ's help. And she brought a very costly ointment to anoint the body of Jesus. What Jesus said here is very important. We are going to read Mass Gospel 14 from verse 3. Bill, please. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she brake the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than three hundred pence and had been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For you have the poor with you always. And whensoever you will, you may do them good. But me, you have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Can you see that, beloved listeners? Christ tells us we have to speak well of what saints have done for him. People who were connected with Jesus, what they did, we have to speak well of it. So, in honoring them, we are honoring Jesus. In honoring the relics of a saint, we are honoring Jesus. That's the point. We speak well of the saints and speak well of Jesus. Jesus did not say, speak only of me, trash the saints. No, wherever the good news is proclaimed, what the saints have done will also be acknowledged. Hence, we can implant their relics with Jesus. Because Jesus says, where I am, my servant will be also. So relics is not superstition. People need to grow and understand the faith better. And the only church that has the fullness of the truth regarding what Jesus did and what the apostles taught us is the Holy Catholic Church. May God bless you. 
Father, I think it's amazing that many of us as Catholics, we have a rather strange idea about this concept of the communion of saints. We somehow think that because people have gone before us, we somehow are completely separated from them, and yet they're still part of us. They're still part of the Church, the body of Christ, and we too often forget that that is the case. Excellent, yes. We are all still part and parcel of the body of Christ. You see, we are a composite of body and soul. Whether your body or soul, all will be saved. All, your body and soul will be saved. Christ promised I will raise you up on the last day. And that is why we see that in the word of God, in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, if you read from from verse 9, you will see the communion of saints at work. The communion of saints. So let us hear from verse 9 to verse 11, please, of Revelation chapter 7. Bill, please. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tons, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God. Amen. Dear listeners, that is the fellowship of the saints. That is the triumphant church, the heavenly church, which is our ultimate destiny our ultimate home. But now, as the pilgrim church, people on earth, we are in solidarity with them. We pray and they pray for us. Then there are those who are in the suffering church, those we call holy souls in purgatory. Those ones we pray for them. Those who are candidate for hell. We don't know them. God knows them. Our prayer matters nothing for them. But we have fellowship with those in heaven and those holy souls in purgatory. That is the mystical body of Christ. So the church is bigger than just the earthly church. And beloved listeners, this is one reason we always explain no human being can found a church. No human being can found the church. Only God can found the church because ultimately the church is the mystical body of Christ. Think about it, dear listeners. How do you think a common man or common woman can found the mystical body of Christ? That is sheer ignorance. The Old Testament peoples, who founded them? God. Exodus 19, from verse 4. See, if you follow my law and this, you alone will be my people on the face of the planet. Then, 5 and 6, 
I will make you a kingdom of priests. Who will make them? I, God, will make you. I, God, will found you as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Then 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, St. Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Who founded you as a chosen race, a royal priesthood? Who made you the church? Jesus says, You are Peter. Upon this rock, I, Jesus, I, God, the second person of the Trinity, we found you. We found the church. That is why any human being founding a church is acting in ignorance. We only remain in the church Jesus already founded. Because the church is a covenant mystery. Only God can make covenant for us. The covenant with Noah, who made it? God. The covenant with Isaac, who made it? God. The covenant with David, who made it? God. And the covenant of the New Testament, the body and blood of Jesus, who made it? Jesus. He took bread, blessed it, gave to them, said, this is my body given for you. He took wine, blessed it, gave to them, and said, this chalice which is poured out for you and for many is the new covenant. Dear listeners, only God can found covenant. Only God can make covenant with us. So no human being can found what we call church. That's an important lesson you take from this. Never forget it. That is why the Catholic Church respects everyone, every group. But we know theologically that there is only one church. We don't condemn anyone, but we know a man or woman cannot found the mystical body of Christ. So the church suffering, the church triumphant, the church pilgrim, Christ is the center. He is the one who made it real. Otherwise, there is no mystical body of Christ. God bless you. Father, here's kind of a follow-up question to what you have been just sharing with us, and that is simply this. On what basis does the church have the authority to establish these days of fast and abstinence that we have to regard during this Lenten season? Thank you. Yes, beloved listeners, the church has authority from Christ to shepherd us, to lead us. Like I was saying, just as he mentioned, my brother Bill mentioned, it's a real good follow-up question because it ties into the founding of the church and the office of shepherding the church. When God founded the people of old, the Israelites, God appointed Moses as shepherd. So God appoints shepherds for his people. Jeremiah 3.15, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. So God gave them shepherd. Then when Christ fulfilled that reality of the people of God in what we now call the church, the new people of God, the new Israel, he also gave us a new Moses, a new shepherd, St. Peter. St. Peter. 
a new Moses, a new shepherd, Saint Peter. God gave us Saint Peter so that Saint Peter is the one Christ told, You are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's the authority. That's the power of the keys. I will give you the keys to bind and lose. So against that background, the church, using the power to bind and lose, can establish days of fasting and abstinence. The church has the power to establish days of fasting and abstinence. Why? Because the church is given the authority by Jesus to shepherd us. And the church has always done so from the beginning. That is why St. Paul will tell us, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, this is how one should regard us, servants of Christ and dispensers, stewards of the mysteries of God. So servants of Christ and dispensers of the mysteries of God. And what is more, Jesus told them, He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 16. So you can see, it is absolutely important you do what the church says. And just yesterday, we celebrated the office of the chair of Peter, the feast of the chair of Peter. Hmm. And we see this line of scripture, Matthew 23, verse 2 to 3. The scribes and Pharisees sit on the chair of Moses. You must therefore do what they tell you. In the same way, the Pope sits on the chair of Peter. You must therefore do what he tells you. That is the teaching of Jesus. May God bless you. You know, Father, people really struggle with authority today for a variety of reasons. I mean, people are discovering various forms of corruption, uh, whether it be in our government whether it be, I know in some cases, even within the church, because we do know the church is divine, but it's also very human. And correct, so, correct. and I think I've heard you say, Father, that, you know, if Jesus had 12 men, one of them uh, was corrupt, that being Judas, we kind of survived that. So I, I suspect the church is going to survive any corruption that perhaps people use in ex- as an excuse not to regard authority today. Thank you very much. That's a very valid point. Beloved listeners, the truth is that as human beings, we are flawed. We are all struggling to be good. The Holy Father is struggling. The bishops are struggling. The priests are struggling. We are not perfect people. And it is not new to our age. That is why Hebrews chapter 5 from verse 1 says, The high priest is chosen from among human beings. Among human beings, he too is flawed, and so can deal gently with ignorant and wayward, since he himself has his own sins. You see, the apostles were flawed. Peter denied Jesus the first time, 
the second time, the third time. Remember? The apostles all fled and abandoned Jesus at the time of his passion. That's betrayal. The apostles, even after Christ had commissioned them, still had issues among themselves. Galatians chapter 2 from verse 11, issue of discrimination, corruption, discriminating against the Gentiles. Can you see that? We are flawed. But the mere fact that we are flawed does not mean that we are not trying to be good. We are trying to be good. There are many good holy priests, not perfect, but very good and holy, but not perfect. So in the same way, it's important to know that we are all in the same boat. We are all running a race, every one of us, the bishop, the pope, priests, deacons, and lay faithful. We are all running a race. Don't denigrate any one of them because they're not perfect. Remember Christ's statement in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, from verse 31, 32. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demands to have you, to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, see, Christ did not change his mind on Peter simply because he knew beforehand Peter would fail. No, rather, Christ still empowered him, feed my lamb, look after my sheep, tend my flock. So we still have to obey the leadership of the church even if they are not perfect people. That is the will of God, and that's called humility. To judge the Pope or the Bishop and condemn them and say you won't follow the word of Christ anymore, that is not humility. Humility is to bow to the will of God and not to condemn anyone. Not yourself and not the Pope and not any other one. May God bless you. Well, Father Emmanuel, we thank you for joining us today on Apologetics Friday. I'm going to ask you to leave us with a blessing. May Almighty God bless and keep you and enlighten you, help you to follow him in humility, and that your righteousness will exceed the one of his Christ and Pharisees, that you may win everlasting life. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You're listening to Treasures of Faith, and we'll be back with you on Monday. Have a blessed weekend.